ready and they're preparing, I believe, for our special Christmas service, which will be December 18th. December 18th with a lot of kiddos involved. It should be a, a good time. So we're, we're excited about that. Uh, would you open up to John's Gospel in chapter 13? John 13. For those of you that actually have a real Bible and aren't just used to looking at the wall behind me. I want to jump right back into our study in the Gospel of John. We are, I, I talked to a friend uh, this week who preached through the Gospel and it took him six and a half years. So I just want you to know I'm flying through this, alright? So for those of you that think I take my time, I am just, I'm on a jet plane. John chapter 13, and I want to just focus in on verses 34 and 35, if you'd look with me. John 13, 34 says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, if you weren't here last week, last week I just kind of cracked open the door a bit for what it means for us as a fellowship of believers, a family gathered, to be truly loving. What does that look like in our real world? In John chapter 13, one of the ways in which Jesus expressed his love to his disciples, to his family, was he girded himself with a towel, he knelt down, and he washed their feet. So is that what we're supposed to do to show love to one another? We're supposed to have a foot washing service. I got to tell you, I've been at foot washing services. I don't prefer them. <laughs> I don't even like touching my own feet, let alone having somebody else touch my feet. That doesn't do anything for me. But that was in their culture an appropriate thing that they were accustomed to. And I've been in cultures where it is more normal. But my question is, how do we, in this culture, in this environment in which we live, how do we express love to one another? Now, I think there's actually a bigger question that I tried to raise last week, and it's this. Why is it that people, and when I say people, I mean sinners, because that's how they're described in John 13. Why is it that people who are sinners actually feel more comfortable with Jesus than they do with us. And I want you to think about that. Don't just kind of slough it off and say, no, no, they like me. Ask yourself, every once in a while, it's good to ask yourself some hard questions. Are good old-fashioned sinners okay with hanging out with you? Because they seem to be okay with hanging out with Jesus. In fact, that was the complaint that the religious people made about Jesus is he likes to sit with sinners. I love what we did last Sunday night when we did our community harvest dinner. And we fed, I don't know how many meals. We probably had 400 and some meals actually go out because in serving, I had people come up for seconds, thirds, and fourths before others had even gone through for their firsts. And then they came back with a request for a to-go box. So we probably actually had about 325 to 350 there, is what I was told by Brother Ben. But we probably put out more than 400. I loved what happened. 
And I love that when I talked to people, they referenced many of you in the contacts that you made with them that night. That you would actually sit down at the table and talk to them. I appreciate that so much. But one of the things that I have come to realize is that people, in order to feel comfortable, have to feel loved and accepted. They have to feel like they have a place at your table and they don't have to put on airs in order to get there. They just have to be normal in how they get there. <clears throat> the longer I live, the more convinced I am that most people feel unworthy and unacceptable. Most people feel like they don't measure up. They compare themselves to others and they're not as good. They're not as pretty, as handsome, as smart, as gifted. You name it, they don't feel like they measure up. They feel that things that they did or didn't do disqualify themselves from being lovable. So how is it that we as a body called Christ's body are to love people to the point where they can feel that they truly are acceptable in the beloved. Um, when we do wrong, which, by the way, how many of you have done wrong? Come on, admit it. When we do wrong, we feel something. What, what is it that we feel? Guilt. We feel guilty. Guilt is a symptom that something that we have actually done, some behavior is inappropriate, it's unacceptable, it's wrong. And the amazing thing is, is that God has given us a way to deal with guilt. Right? We confess our sins, what we've done wrong. We repent. We turn away from that way of doing things and we turn towards God. And the Scripture promises us that He forgives us and He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. That's God's promise to us. So, guilt really shouldn't be a problem. The way you deal with guilt is you bring it before God. But there's another thing that we, many of us feel, in fact, I believe most of us feel it at some level or another, and it's this thing called shame. And I believe shame goes much deeper than guilt. Guilt deals with our behavior. Shame deals with our identity, who we are. Guilt says, I did wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. It's much worse. It's kind of like inside of me, um, there is this thing that's like a voice that says there is something intrinsically wrong with me. It's not just that I did wrong. I've done a lot of things wrong. I've done more wrong since I was a Christian than before I was a Christian because I got saved fairly young. But inside is this voice that says, I'm unlovable, I'm unacceptable, I'm unworthy, I am just plain wrong. There's something wrong with me. And some of you will know what I mean when I say that there is inside of me this fear that attaches itself to shame because I believe that shame and fear go hand in hand. There is this fear that at some point, somehow, somewhere, my world is going to explode. It's going to implode. It's going to come into the light that there's something wrong with me and all of a sudden everybody's going to know there's something wrong. And so you live with that fear that you're going to be found out that at any moment, the fact that they're bad 
that they're evil, that they're shameful, will be discovered by people. What I want to share with you this morning is actually what drives me as a uh, man, as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather now, as a pastor. I want to talk to you from a, a kind of a deeper place about an overwhelming desire that I have, and I want for you that we all would become authentically real people. That we would stop wearing masks and pretending. We'd stop putting on t-shirts that say Superman on them, or whatever superhero you're trying to emulate at any given point. Whatever it is that you wear to try to cover up who you really are. You know, some people compensate by becoming the class clowns. Others become cool. Others put on a t-shirt called athlete. Others put on t-shirts that say intellectual. But I think it's important that we become authentically real. I don't mean by that that we become a real jerk. I recognize that some people can act like that. I'm talking about being real about what's inside of us. What we struggle with, what we deal with. <clears throat> Some of you will remember Victor Hugo's uh, well-known classic called The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Some of you had to read it in high school. I did. But there's a por portion in The Hunchback of Notre Dame in which Quasimodo, who is a hunchback that lives up in the spires of Notre Dame Cathedral, he spies the woman that he had looked at from afar for years and he had fallen in love with her even though he had never spoken his love to her because he was so hideous. But he spies from the spires of the cathedral her down on the steps of Notre Dame where she is about to be killed. He swoops down, he rescues her, and he carries her into Notre Dame the whole time he's crying out sanctuary. Sanctuary. Because he knew that under the laws of their land, if he could get her inside of the church, there she would be protected and safe. And it's in my heart and what I long for for us is that we would be a sanctuary for people. For real people who deal with real stuff. Who have things in their lives for which they have dealt with for years, but here they find a safe place, a haven, where they can actually bring it into the light of day. We can do our best to cover it up. We can do our best to wear these masks. You know, in the old days, they used to take masks and hold it up in front of them and pretend to be somebody else. We can do that, or we can actually get real with God. Um, back in um, 1975, some of you will remember 1975. In 1975, my soon-to-be brother-in-law, David Reynolds, received a brand new, get this, for those of you that were around back then, you'll know how big this is. He received a brand new, off-the-line, 1975 Chevy Nova. It was like the muscle car of the time. It was like the coolest car. He got that as a graduation gift for graduating from high school. Can you imagine? Don't you want that for a father? So Dave got a brand new 1975 Chevy Nova. And one winter day, much like this, he and my sister and I were driving home from some event and he was kind of doing too fast on the road, monkeying around, and he began to lose control, and we began to slalom down the road, going from side to side as he's trying to regain control. And in the end, we ended up going off the road and hanging over a concrete culvert on the side of the road. 
Now, back in the day, they didn't have front-wheel drive. They had back-wheel drive. So that rear-wheel drive, though, on icy roads, couldn't gain any traction. So Dave and I got out of the car and put my sister Hope behind the wheel, and we told her, we're going to pick up on the car and hope we can get enough lift. You give it a little bit of gas, and you steer it backwards and stop on the road. She said, okay. At that point in time, she didn't even have her license, I don't believe. So Dave and I got out. We got under the car. We're standing down in the snow in the culvert, and we're pushing up. We're, we, we're rocking the car. And finally, as she's giving it gas in reverse, we got up enough lift that the car could get out from over the culvert. And she immediately gave it enough gas to go off the road on the other side <laughs> into another ditch. It's true. David tells me it's still one of the best events of his life. And I have to say to you, um, I believe that story represents my life pretty well. I find myself in a ditch I can't get out of. And I cry out to Jesus for salvation and He comes and meets me in that ditch. He saves me. He gets me out of the ditch. And I walk across the road and get in another ditch. And He meets me in that ditch and teaches me and loves me and gets me out of that ditch. I, I, I consider myself a ditch person. Um, and it's possible that if you were honest, you would admit today that you've been in a few ditches. Or maybe you're in a ditch right now and your cry is, God, if you don't come and meet me in this ditch, I'm afraid this ditch is going to become my grave. And God's heart's desire, I believe, is to meet with you today. What I want to talk to you this morning about is what I consider to be the deeper broken places of our lives that actually have the potential of impacting us in an ongoing fashion if we don't allow Jesus to come and meet with us in those deep places. I want to talk to you about areas of brokenness that leave a residue. Even though we're forgiven, even though we love God, they leave a residue of brokenness that continue to plague us even in later years. So I want to talk to you this morning Based upon the scripture that we've read, Jesus' command that we love one another as he has loved us. He's loved us even in our deepest places of woundedness. And I want to talk to you about that this morning. So I want to give you what are kind of very simply five areas of brokenness that I want you to be aware of that I believe can have lasting impact in our lives. The first one is this. Wounds of withholding that we experience in our early childhood. Now, Help me for just a minute. Okay, so you got to look up here at me for just a second. What are things that a child needs from the youngest age on? What would you say a child needs? Love? I'm sorry, what? Safety? Nurturing? What else? I'm sorry? Okay, boundaries? Food? Physical touch? Acceptance? All of these things are things that children need from the youngest age. And when they receive those things, they become a foundation of security for them for the rest of their lives. But when they're missing, something happens inside of them. And here's what I want you to get. When we have deep wounds in our lives, it has the potential, if not the likelihood, of affecting our view of ourselves, our view of God, and our view of others. Now, let me just ask you up front. You know, if you can't be safe to be vulnerable here, then there's going to be a really big problem. So, 
Just honestly, how many of you would say that you experienced wounds of withholding where things that should have been given to you weren't early in your childhood? How many of you would be able to say, yeah, I experienced... And by the way, let me just say this before you even answer. The fact that you experienced wounds of withholding doesn't mean that your parents were bad. It just means they're as broken as you are. They struggle with life just like you did. My dad had 13 kids. Now, there were probably only six or seven of us home at any one time. But he had to work hard just to provide for a family that size. He didn't have time to give me the attention that I so desperately craved. That didn't mean he was a bad man. It just meant he was so overwhelmed with life. He was fighting to survive. So, the fact that you experienced a wound of withholding doesn't mean your parents or anybody else is bad. It just means they struggled with life, just like you probably struggle with life. So, how many of you have experienced wounds of withholding in your life? Would you raise your hands? Maybe, by the way, this could be, wounds of withholding can be in divorce, abandonment. I talked with a friend very recently who at 11 years of age, his dad just packed up and left. Just left. Tell me that's not going to affect him inside. So, wounds of withholding. Now, let, let me ask you again. How, how many of you said you experienced it? Let me see your hands again, just real quick. Okay, thank you. Now, how many of those of you that raise your hands would say that that wound of withholding affects how you see yourself, how you see others, and how you see God? Right? And if that's us who are Christians, does it shock you at all that people out there in the world have similar things? that they're dealing with, you wonder why they act the way they do? Maybe because there's been some stuff that has happened in their life. Number two. So that's wounds of withholding. Number two, wounds of aggression. This is where you get something you don't deserve. This could be things like physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, even spiritual abuse. These might be actual words that have been spoken over you, or they might be how you as a child perceive them growing up. Um, my parents' first child was my older brother, Mikey. Uh, Mikey uh, was born to my parents as their very first child, and at 16 days old, he died in what probably today would be considered a crib death. My parents didn't handle it well. My mom went into seclusion and uh, they grieved deeply. But years went by and my parents had more children. Another one came along who actually died, my uh, older sister, Jennifer. But ultimately, my parents had, when I came along, two other children ahead of me. My older sister, Julie, my sister, Hope, and then me. So, my dad lost his first son and now he has a son. And you would think he would be thrilled, wouldn't you? That you finally have the son you wanted? Not so much. Um, my dad was a hardworking guy. He was a farmer, a machinist. He was a hunter, a mechanic. I mean, everything that you... If you think of man's man, that's how I picture my dad. Everything he put his hand to, he did well. He did it all out. Uh, he was afraid of no one. Back in the day before he was a Christian... He used to actually be the president of the bar that was right next to our house. And one of the things he used to love to do was to go and pick fights. He reveled in his strength. There was nothing he liked better than fist fights. That's just the kind of guy he was. He loved to prove that he was the man. So, here I am, Chris Lanneville, 
kid growing up. My dad's an outdoorsman, if there's ever an outdoorsman. Chris Lonneville likes to stay inside and read. I would rather read than do anything else in life. My favorite book growing up was Webster's Dictionary. Really was. I still today, one of the first things I do in my day is I check my word of the day. Always want to keep your vocabulary going. Uh, I like to read. I like to watch TV. And I have to tell you, part of the reason I like to read and like to watch TV is because I could enter vicariously into the storyline, which was a whole lot better than my life. So you would think my dad would have been happy, but all throughout my life, my dad, by at least by attitude and by things he did, if not by words he said, I don't have a clear recollection of him ever saying it, but in my heart of hearts and resounding in my mind all through my life was this statement, you're not the son I wanted. The son I wanted died. Now, years later, my younger brother, uh, George Jr., came along, and he was everything my dad could have ever wanted. I mean, George would rather hunt and trap and work than anything else in life. And so, I experienced what would be called some wounds of aggression. There were a number of times when my dad would uh, end up uh, hitting me hard enough that I would end up in the hospital. Uh, beatings were very, very normal in my house growing up, but because I had all my sisters in line, my dad didn't think it was right for him to beat them, so it didn't matter. who. Did. I, I can remember one thing. I, I don't even know why I'm saying this. But I remember one occasion. We had kerosene heaters in our house. We didn't have central heat or anything like that. We had little kerosene heaters around the house. We had barrels of kerosene outside our house that I'd have to fill a five-gallon can with, bring it in, and dump it into our heaters in order to keep the heat going. And on one occasion, my sister Dawn, some of you will know Dawn, <coughs> Dawn ended up coming into the house saturated in kerosene. Without a question asked, my dad took me out and began to beat me for putting kerosene all over my sister Dawn. Later on, that same day, he found out that my sister Kathy is the one who did it. He said, well, that's for all the times I didn't catch you doing wrong. That was how I grew up. That was my upbringing. Um, how many of you in your life would be honest enough to admit that you have probably experienced some wounds of aggression? Raise your hands if you would. Okay. How many of you would say that those wounds of aggression have affected you even up to today? Yeah. Now, because we don't know what to do with people's stuff, because we haven't allowed God into the deep, broken places of our own lives, we end up avoiding people. Or, at best, we give them an aspirin for their cancer. I have a friend who uh, was the pastor of the largest, I believe, the largest church within his denomination. He was a part of a denomination that if I said it, you would know it. He was the pastor of one of, if not the largest churches within his denomination. Successful church. I mean, this is a church that knew revival before Bethel was even on the scene. Before Toronto came along, they were walking in revival in a powerful way. He got done ministering overseas one day got on a plane, he came home, went to bed, he got up the next day, and he could not get out of bed. He had such fear and terror grip him that he couldn't leave the house. He couldn't talk to anybody. Everything had to be perfectly dark. There had to be no sound. 
he ended up being put into a facility to deal with mental issues. He was in there for 45 days. The mental institution was literally a block away from the headquarters of his denomination. While he was in the facilities, he didn't get one visit from one person within his denomination because they were afraid it might be catchy. But get this, the president wrote him a letter. The president of his denomination wrote him a letter while he was in there. And basically, I'm sure he intended the letter to be encouraging, but in the letter it said this, it has this one line. Listen, buy yourself a pair of shoes that will make you feel better, and here's a check for $75 to help you do it. Here's a guy who's in a mental ward in an asylum where they take away your shoes and you're going to give them a check for $75 and say shoes will make you feel better? It's because we don't know what to do when people have deep woundedness in their life. We get scared that it might be catchy. One of the things that I've come to realize in my own life is that I have to meet Jesus in the ditch of my own life first before I can help people out of their ditches. And once I've met him there, I'm able to point them to a Savior who can go into their ditch and save them equally. It doesn't happen, by the way. I know that this is what you want. I know some of you here have been praying that in one fell swoop, Jesus would heal it and it would be done and gone. Can Jesus do that? Yes. But more often than not, it doesn't happen in a moment of time. It happens in a lot of moments of time where you continue to meet with Jesus and you find yourself more and more free. For those of you that have been here for a while, I think the testimony would be that I am not the same person who came to this church 25 years ago. I've changed because I've continued to meet with Jesus day after day, ditch after ditch. And that's really what we say to those people who we meet who are also in deep need. Uh, When people hear my story, I've had people at various times ask me my story, and when they hear my story, they say, so are you all healed from all of that? And I usually say, yeah, I am. And I'm being healed. And I'm yet to be healed. How about you? Isn't it really the same for all of us? God comes, he meets with us, there's a level of healing, but there's still healing that's going on. And there's still more healing yet to happen. And that's really how I see things. Now, We can fall into the trap of hiding. Hiding the deep wounds of our lives. Um, I can hide behind knowledge. I like to know things. I like to study things. Um, If I were in this room, the, the temptation for me would be on my phone, if I got bored with whatever was being said, to be on my phone and researching things. Because I like to know things. I like to look up things. Even when I preach, I think I know something, but I'll go back and I'll check to make sure because I know sure shooting Jeremy's going to check on me to make sure that what I said was right. (laughs) Because he got it from somewhere. I can hide behind knowledge. I can hide behind academia. I can hide behind things that I've been able to accomplish. I mean, there's not too many people that have been in one church for 25 years anymore. That doesn't happen. So I can say to people, well, I must have done something right. At least they haven't kicked me out yet. Uh, I can hide behind my office or my title. And a lot of people do. I call people on the phone and they answer with their title. I'm thinking, okay. I have people in this town ask me, um, what should I call you, Reverend? 
And where they get this reverend from, I don't know. And I said, how about you call me what my mom and dad called me? They just call me Chris. That's okay. I don't have anything to prove to anybody. I don't have anything to lose. I figure if I put it out for everybody, everybody's going to know that's as good as it's going to get. This is what we see, and this is what we get. But we can hide behind all kinds of things in order to try to prove that we're worth something. Now, lest you wonder about it, I believe that what we're talking about today is very, very biblical. Um, when I was younger, I can still remember, I was at the tab. How many of you know the tab in Buffalo? I was at the tab in Buffalo. I can still remember the occasion. It was 1994. I'm at the tab in Buffalo where this man is ministering who is a revivalist. He's known in the area. I'm sitting probably as far back as you can get because usually when we go to church, I like to sit in the back just in case if it's not really good, I can get out easily. Um, sorry, it's true. Um, so Kay and I are sitting in the back in this service and the guy who's preaching up front says, Oh, wait, wait, he's in the middle of preaching. Wait, I see my friend Chris Lonneville. He's a great pastor of a church in Warsaw. I used to love when I would be recognized. Oh, he's such a man of the word. I got an introduction recently where somebody said, he's a man of the word. And I love that. But I've come to love what I believe are more biblical introductions that I find in the Bible. So let, let me give you an introduction. Good morning. It is our pleasure to welcome to the platform this morning our special guest speaker. I'm going to ask you all to welcome the demoniac of the Gadarenes. Now, is it not true that he got delivered? Weren't the demons cast out of him? Why do we still call him the demoniac of the Gadarenes then? Or how about this? Would you please welcome our special esteemed guest, the woman caught in adultery. We read it. She was forgiven and accepted. And we could go on and on. Simon the leper's skin has been white for 2,000 years. Why is it that we still recognize people based upon their dysfunction? Can I tell you why? They would tell you the reason why is because that's where they met with Jesus in the deep, broken places of their lives. That's where they found Jesus was their Savior. That's why Paul is able to say, I am chief among sinners. Not I was, I am. Outside of the grace of God, this is who I am. So, who am I? I am Chris Lonneville, and I am one hot royal mess that Jesus is continuing to heal day by day. That's who I am. It doesn't get any better unless He comes and does something in me. There might be a whole lot of things about me you don't like. Sometimes I'm afraid to ask. Sometimes I ask. But I can tell you this, if Jesus doesn't come and do something, it doesn't get any better. This is as good as it gets. Some time ago, uh, some of you will remember this, Karen and I discovered we had a uh, herd of woodchucks. Don't know what the correct term is. We had a brood of woodchucks that burrowed under our garage floor. We have a cement floor. We have a nice garage. I like it. I was afraid that they were going to jeopardize the integrity of our concrete floor. And I wanted to kill them. But I live near enough to town that if I pull out my shotgun and I start shooting, somebody's going to get mad. <laughs> I should confess. 
I pulled out my 22 because I figured that was quieter and shot one of them. And then I felt guilty about that, thinking, okay, that's hiding, so I can't do that. Okay, so anyways, we ended up calling a guy from Gainesville who made his specialty catching critters and getting rid of them. So we called that guy. He came and he checked all around and then he came and he knocked on our door and I came out and I said, how are we doing? He said, good. He said, you know, you're not going to have any more problem with the woodchucks under your floor. And I said, oh, good, you're going to catch them. He goes, yeah, I am going to catch them over in the hedgerow where they are having their homes. Uh, but he said, that's not why you won't have any more problems with them under your garage. And I said, why not? He said, because when woodchucks make a burrow, they do all of their stuff in that hole. Everything that you can imagine that a woodchuck does, a woodchuck does in that hole. <laughs> I thought the same thing. I found myself in the rhythm. <laughs> so, a woodchuck will do all of its business in that hole until the hole begins to stink so bad, even the woodchuck can't stand the smell and it moves on. And it never comes back to that hole. And here's my point. I think until the stuff of our lives begins to stink so badly we can't take it anymore, we continue to hide it in our holes. But when the smell gets bad enough that we can't even take it anymore, that's when we bring it to Jesus. And say the pain and the fear of confronting it is worth something because it's going to be less than the pain that I feel hiding in it. So ultimately, what I am challenging you with this morning is that we actually bring all of our stuff to Jesus. I've said to you many, many times, I've got stuff, but so do you. You've all got stuff here. Everybody has stuff. Can we bring our stuff to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you don't heal this, it's not going to get any better. You need to heal this deep thing in me. Number three. Yikes. Yikes, yikes, yikes. I'll do number three and we'll stop. I didn't realize it was taking so long. Number three. Next one is event wounds. This is when you go through something tough that marks your life it becomes like a pivot point in your history. In fact, when you think about this event, you think about it before and after this event. It could be anything. It could be a car accident, uh, an injury. Like one of the events that marks my life is when a tree fell on me in 1990. That's a before and after event. So let me give you this example. I have a dear friend, uh, a man who I esteem greatly, um, loved in the Lord, honestly respected. Um, he and uh, his family went with Karen and our family to Darien Lake Amusement Park one day. And uh, while we're walking around, we would go on different things. And there was one ride that we said, oh, let's go on. This is an easy ride. In terms of uh, excitement and fear factor, it's like maybe a one. Okay, so it's down there pretty low. It's called the pirate ship. Do any of you guys know what the pirate ship is? You sit on it, and you go up and back and up and back. And honestly, there's no fear. It's just, it's really kind of monotonous, actually. Anyways, we decided we would go on the pirate ship. So we get on this pirate ship and the ship is just sitting there and you got people on each side. People facing this way, people facing this way. And you get on. And again, it doesn't, it's not like you go up and around. We're not talking about that. It just goes up and up. And a bar comes down in front of you. And I'm thinking, okay, the, the chance of you falling out of this thing, because I had watched it first, the chance of you falling out of this thing is like nil. 
but they put a bar down in front of you just to keep you in your seat. I'm sure some kid would jump out or something. So anyways, we're on this ride, and the thing starts slowly, going back a little bit, and then a little bit more, a little bit more. And I noticed I'm sitting next to this brother in the Lord, and I noticed that he's holding onto the bar, and I'm thinking, okay, we're not going to fall out. We're too big. And then I noticed his knuckles began to get white as he gripped harder and harder and harder. And then he began to moan. Literally moan. And I think, okay, there's something really wrong here. So finally, Karen and I and the other adults began to yell for the attendant to get their attention to shut this thing down. Finally, they shut it down, and we get off. A little bit of time goes by, and we end up in a pavilion sitting at a picnic table, and we talk about it, and we discovered something. The ride didn't scare them at all. Going back and forth didn't scare them. The height didn't scare them. But at the bottom, when you got up high enough, you could look down, there was a little pond of water. And that caused him so much fear and anxiety because as a little boy, when he would do wrong, his dad would fill the bathtub up to the rim and hold him under the water so that the only thing that stuck up was his nose. And from that point on, that's how he responds to water. How many of you know that's an event wound? Um, I had a friend, a guy that I went to school with. Um, he would walk through the halls of the school like a space cadet. Maybe you've met him. I don't know. You've met somebody like him. It's like he lives in another world. Like When he would walk down the hall, by the way, he would carry all of his books. He never put his books in a locker. He carried all of his books. You know, we are the ones who used to Forget our books at home because I knew I didn't need them. Who cared? Or we'd put them in our locker and never see them again for the rest of the year. But Louie walked around carrying his books down the hall and he would be looking up at the ceiling the whole time, glassy-eyed. And kids would trip him and push him and kick him and make fun of him. We became Christians and I decided to make Louie my project. I began to talk to him. Nobody else talked to him. Everybody just made fun of him. And by the way, he was very smart. When he would take tests, he aced every test that I could imagine. But I began to talk to Louis, and I discovered something. When Louis was a little boy, I think he was like in elementary school, he was sent by his mom out to the barn to do something in their barn on their property. And when he opened the doors of the barn, he found immediately in front of him was his dad hanging by a rope from the rafters where he had just committed suicide. How many of you know that kind of event can affect people? For Louis, he escaped into his own world. So we're talking about deep wounds that affect us in life. Event wounds, things that happen that become for us like a before and after kind of deal. Where we measure things based upon that. And by the way, most of us have some sort of event in our lives that we measure off of. Now, some of you have good memories and you remember events based upon different good things, which is wonderful. But some of us have some not-so-good things that we measure by. And those things have the potential of affecting how we view ourselves, how we view others, and how we view God. We're going to end there today uh, just so that I have time next week to bring it to where I want to. But I want you to keep this in mind. I encourage you to come back because I want you to make sure you hear the rest of this, these other Two wounds and where we're going to go with this, okay? Would you stand with me?
I told you about Louis. What I didn't tell you is that after I graduated from high school, I pretty much lost track of Louis. Didn't know what happened to him. Didn't know where he was. Hoped he was doing okay. Karen and I attended a funeral in Geneva, New York. And to our shock, we're sitting at a table and across from me is Louis. Except for now he's married with children and he's a professor at William and Mary College in Geneva. Healed in heart, lover of Jesus, and lover of his family. So I'm just saying to you today, these wounds that we have that affect how we live, and I'm going to talk about that more next week, how these wounds affect us, they can have deep healing go on because we have a good Savior. He loves to come and touch us in the broken places of our lives. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I recognize that uh, this didn't actually go the way I planned in terms of time frame. But I also recognize, Lord, you know what should have and could have happened today. And I trust you. But Lord, where there has been wounds that have gone on, whether it be wounds of withholding or wounds of aggression or event wounds like we've talked about today, where those things have impacted lives, I'm praying, Lord, that there would be those souls here today that would be courageous enough, brave enough to bring them before You. Because Lord, I have discovered that Your standards are embarrassingly low. You will take anything we put in Your hands and You will make something wonderful of it. You will heal us. And You will even use that as a part of our testimony. So Lord, today, I'm asking You to prick hearts and to say, you don't have to stay this way. You don't have to stay in hiding or pretending anymore because we have a real Savior for our real stuff. Open their hearts to be able to begin. Maybe it's just baby steps right now, but begin to let you in to those dark, shameful places where we're so afraid. Begin that work in them today, I pray, Father. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. The Lord bless you.